it's Brian with the Dealership Fix-It Podcast. This is episode number 15. And tonight, hopefully, you've got about 100 minutes. Uh, this is a uh, another long uh, podcast. This one will be worth your while. If you work in a dealership, uh, you're going to want to hear this whole thing. Uh, got a guy named Craig Martin on. He's with Western Power Sports currently. His experience includes owning and running his own uh, shop prior to that role, right in that North Texas market, a very successful uh, KTM and Husky dealer. Uh, Prior to that, he ran Oak Hill Raceway for several years. Prior to that, he worked for Kawasaki Team Green on the race side for many years and additional dealership uh, experience prior to that. The cool thing about Craig, I think, is uh, he is passionate about sharing exactly the sort of thing that this podcast was invented for, which is sharing, uh, you know, passionate ideas that plug in, make sense for guys to serve customers, run a better business, make more money, on and on and on. Uh, Craig actually also sent me a little uh, a little write-up called Dealership Improvement Ideas 101, uh, kind of fitting for this 100-minute podcast, uh, but he shared that with me, and by the time you're done listening to this, if that's something that interests you, you can email me, and I'll, uh, with his blessing, I can send that out to anybody who's interested um, check out the podcast. Please share with anybody that you think uh, in the business that needs to hear it or any of the ideas in it. Uh, check out my other podcasts and uh, buckle up. Time for some dealership fix it. Hello and welcome to episode number 15 of the Dealership Fix-It podcast. I am Brian, I'm your host, and I'm here tonight with a guy who's done a lot of things in power sports, and I want to touch on some of that today because, uh, trust me, everybody listening to this is going to have plenty to be uh, to be gleaned from an individual like this. Uh, Craig Martin, I've got on the podcast, he is currently with uh, Western Power Sports as a rep in Texas. He's previously been a uh, dealership owner of a dealership in Texas. Uh, he's been a race team manager as well as uh, ran a very successful uh, motocross track. So um, I guess we can touch on any of those if we get into them in depth, but just as a high level overview, uh, Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And uh, it's an honor to be here, to be honest with you. Nice. Well, I'm glad you agreed to uh, to come on and share some of this. You know, you've got you've got a lot of depth um, in the years experience you have, as I think I alluded to before with you. You've got a lifetime worth of experience that um, we can share in just a little brief podcast as much as we can share and keep people awake for. I know we're time limited, so sometimes people will listen and sometimes they uh, if it's if it's good content, I've found they they listen and the feedback is, yeah, I could have kept listening, but I. I didn't have more time in the car. I had something coming up, but it's with good stuff. Hopefully, uh, we'll connect some dots for some other folks. So, um, so you've got a long road you've been on through the years, and uh, and here you are now at, uh, at Western Power. You've been there for a few years now, right? Yeah, it's been about two and a half years. Okay, okay. And you're in uh, you're in the area in North Texas, right? You're you're in the in the backyard of one of your big competitors, and. I am, <laughs> and it definitely makes it a little bit tough sometimes, but uh, I love a challenge. I've always loved challenges, and uh, having the 
Dallas territory for Western Power Sports and getting to visit dealers every day, all day long is just another extension of, you know, a guy that's since I was 14 years old, I've done my hobby for my job. I've never had a real job mm-hmm. and I get to make money and have fun. I have a great group of dealers that are now close friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a, it's an awesome experience to be honest with you. And I get paid for it too. Believe it or not. <laughs> well, it's important because if they want you to keep showing up, of course you have to keep getting paid and then be able to be able to do that unless you're, well, unless, I mean, I don't know, you've been successful in other areas of business. Maybe you've socked enough away that you can just keep doing it for free. I won't, I won't put that out there. Well, I guess we're about to broadcast it. So we won't, we'll, we'll leave that as a question mark at the end of that. So uh, I guess most relevant to this format of this you know podcast is about dealership now you've you've been in around dealership for a number of years obviously having owned and and ran your own and now you're consulting with dealerships you know with products of your own and helping them find the ways through either the products or the the experiences you've had to help them be more successful um I guess, you know, I would start out with, I, I, I like to kind of hold my cards a little close to the vest or some things I told you I wanted to talk about and then some things I want to bring up off the cuff because I want to get your initial reactions to them. But sure. do you feel like, like right now, what do you think is the toughest thing about the business right now? Here it is. We're at the end of February 2019. So we've just gotten into 2019. Essentially, we're in the winter, you know, months here. Uh, you guys aren't in such a bad winter as we are up north here. But what do you think right now is the toughest thing facing dealerships, at least the ones you interact with right now? Honestly, um, keeping their chins up and keeping a progressively forward movement going with the dealership. Okay. Um, and that stems from internet sales being challenging, you know, and taking some brick and mortar business away. Um <laughs> I also believe it's a little bit tougher to find employees that have experience. Okay. I don't believe that young kids run to their local dealership at 14 years old and ride their bicycle five miles each direction to, to be a part of it like I used to do when I was 14. Uh-huh. Um, so getting good quality employees, I think, is a struggle. I think dealing with the Internet is a struggle. Um, and just the, the rapid changing world that we're living in with all the social media and the available information for the consumer has also changed a lot of it too, because the consumers are very well educated on product. So okay. that's another whole product problem. It's um, it's funny because I always wonder, man, I think it would almost help, but it certainly will hinder the fact that you know teenagers now have the level of experience they have built right in the little device. You know, if you're I don't know whatever age a kid's allowed to have a phone nowadays. If it's a teenager, let's call it just to be middle ground but the level of experience they can gain from whatever a video game on that or just connectedness with their friends obviously it's it removes a little bit of maybe urgency to get their sort of mobility through like you'd said bicycle or a dirt bike or you know any of these sort of things that at least i grew up with and i know you did so i know that i i like to think that maybe we can plug back into that or maybe there'll be a pendulum swing the other way when they want real life experiences but i know that is a challenge for dealers so absolutely um with um mail order stuff so that's something you had mentioned and we talked about it before but um, you're you're showing your age there 
mail order is a really old term that a lot of people may not even know what that means. <laughs> mail or yeah, exactly. Mail order brides. I think that's what mm-hmm. I guess I think of. Right. Yeah. So, so, um, where does that play into, do you, do a lot of your dealers, um, focus, uh, at least a, a part of their business on that right now? Uh, surprisingly, no, you know, a, a lot of them honestly are, uh, I think a little bit afraid to get into that world. And to be honest with you, they kind of should. Um, it's super expensive. It's actually really hard to make profit on in internet sales. Right. And I think if they keep focused on their brick and mortar part of their business and work towards that and come up with ideas and philosophies and pro- uh, processes, they'll actually create value within their store. And that's a big part of door swings. If you create that, um, loyalty to the brand if you create the um atmosphere that people want to be a part of you know it's it's something that's super hard to do it takes a lot of change and a lot of dealers aren't really kind of set up to do that but you know having the right employees and having the right people around you you can you can always do it and it's it's um it's something that needs to be done you know it's it's very important to create an environment that the consumer wants to be a part of Right. And the internet, all it really does is create a little bit of convenience of being able to sit in your living room and place your orders and stuff like that. Um, receiving a package at your house is difficult unless you're a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because who's going to receive it? Is it going to sit on the porch and get stolen? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and if it's an item that needs to be installed, now you have to take that item somewhere to get it installed if you're not technically savvy. So there's a lot of downside to internet sales and internet sales are becoming more and more expensive for the internet sales companies through the cost of shipping is going up. The cost of all this uh, sales tax now um, being applied to internet sales. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of actually kind of cool things that are going on right now in the industry, honestly, that I believe are going to bring a little bit of business back to the brick and mortar stores that are ready for it and that um, have a positive outlook on it. Well, that's a bright spot even. I mean, obviously you've, I'm sure you've had that conversation with your dealers. I I would have to assume that that whole sky is falling. Maybe there's a little bit less of that vibe that, okay, so we we do have something to offer at dealership level, right? The old, like, well, I can't stock anything because people are just going to go on the internet for it. Right. Obviously that that's a, you know, extreme example of that and maybe an easy way for a dealer to shut down that path in their brain of, of uh, attacking that. But uh, you're shining the light on that. There's a, there's some rays of hope there they need to, to embrace and, and throttle down on. Yeah. The, I, I can't stock anything because I can't compete against the internet is exactly why the internet got strong. Yeah. You know, if, if you look at the successful dealers and really look at them, they are still pedal down stocking everything they possibly can every new item that comes out in the internet uh, or through the distributors or through vendors or through any kind of um, resource that they can get you know new items from uh, is something that these dealers that are actually successful are bringing into the dealership and when you walk into the dealership as a customer, you know, you want to walk into the dealership and honestly have the same experience that you would if you were online. Online, you get to see pretty much everything that's new, everything exciting, all the colors, all the sizes, all the everything. Obviously, dealers can't stock everything that's available on the whole internet. Um, 
But if you have enough of that, it's enough. It's enough to keep the door swinging. It's enough to actually attract people to come to your dealership. And then once the dealership, once the consumer gets in the dealership, you know, the one thing that I see so often when I'm standing behind the parts counter with parts associates from various dealerships is how they perceive the customer, how they treat the customer and everything else. And I just scratch my head and just go, you know, this guy just drove through terrible traffic for however many hours or minutes or whatever to get here to ask a question, to look at something, to do something. I mean, concerted amount of effort gets put into going to a brick and mortar dealership. And for you not to uh, respect that effort and not to um, embrace the fact that that guy is there. I mean, how many times have I sat at dealerships? And I'm sure you have too, that you hear the parts guy as the guy walks away or as he hangs up the phone going, yeah, that guy's an idiot. Uh-huh. You know, well, that guy's not an idiot. He's not as educated as you are. I'd hope. I mean, that is why you're paid. You're a paid professional within the industry. So, you know, just because a customer comes up and asks a question that is somewhat basic or, or maybe kind of mundane to you doesn't mean that that customer's dumb or anything. He, again, reached out to you, the dealer, you, the parts guy, you, the service guy, whatever, to ask that question because he thought you're the expert. Uh-huh. So why would you ever treat him not with the respect that he should earn as a customer, you know? You, you know what I've, I, it's uh, as a side note to that sort of, um, at least that thought for you, I, I find through the years I've been in the business that, you know, it's, it's so enthusiast based and, and like the side product of people that are so enthusiastic and just rabid about, you know, I know this and I know that, and just be so knowledgeable and really care so passionately about it is I find that the, I think the negative side effect that can occur doesn't occur everywhere, but you do, like you say, you do see it is the intolerance for people that don't know as much you a little bit of an elitism right and and that to me worked at dealerships right and and honestly i'm sure i was guilty of it plenty times too especially as a younger man um so i think i feel like that's a little bit inherent and with something with the level of depth of enthusiasm we have but you're right it's intolerable it's something that you know you got to make sure that gets weeded out and, and the perspective gets shifted if you know if it's experienced you um some of the things we talked about before um, were to me kind of, I think they're great ideas and I think they go, they would be counterintuitive to what some dealers would do. You want to tell, uh, tell the audience here kind of, um, what your, uh, one of your approaches of at least try this to do with, uh, pricing of internet tires versus buy the tire from us and installations. Sure. So I don't know. I sold my dealership, uh, June of 2016. And prior to that, I had, you know, built it up to the level that it was, and I was pretty proud of what I was doing. But I had a time where internet was kind of dipping at my tire sales, and I was starting to lose some of my tire sales, and I was trying to figure out a way to um, combat that. And fast forward to my current job, uh, I walk into dealers and I see on the service writer's counter or on the wall behind the service writer or in the parts room or something, I see signs all the time that basically say that if you buy the tire from me, you get the, your tire installed at one price. If you buy it from the internet, 
I'm going to charge you an extra 25 bucks. And honestly, doing that to a customer is like flipping your middle finger up at them. And it's not a good thing. How would you feel if you were a customer and you walked in somewhere and you didn't understand the business? You don't know how it works. You thought all you were doing was bringing in your tire to get it installed. You were going to pay them 50 bucks to put the tire on. And you thought you were doing the right thing. You were, you were there to solicit business from the dealership. And all of a sudden you find out that, oh, oh wait a minute here. Because you bought your tire somewhere else, you're going to get charged an extra 25 bucks because we don't really appreciate your business. And so I back flipped back again, I don't know, eight years ago or so. I took on a different approach and I've had some of my dealers take this approach and some of them have told about it and they don't do much about it. Um, but the bottom line is I, I flipped it. So, and it's kind of hard to follow me with, I love, I love to draw pictures and, and write on stuff to show people <laughs> stuff on a podcast. It's a little impossible, but anyway, so, so we got to use, you, they just have to use their imagination. Like yeah, start, start yeah. picturing it. Yeah. So, so just picture this. If you normally would charge a guy that walked in with his rear tire off of his bike and walked in and said, hey, I want to buy a tire. If you normally would charge him $50 to put a tire on and you really wanted to do something to get people to quit buying on the Internet and buy from you, then instead of charging him an extra 25 to put the tire on, so 75 if he brought it in from the Internet, what if you and, and so back this up again? I'm a huge, huge, huge believer in menus. I don't believe a service department should ever talk about their hourly rate. I don't believe hourly rates are something that the consumer ever is all right with hearing. You know, even if you're 80 bucks an hour, that's still so much higher than what the average consumer walking in a dealership makes themselves. So it puts them on edge right off the bat. If you're $125 an hour, that's, you know, probably you're probably talking to a guy that makes 20 bucks an hour. And all of a sudden, they just feel like that's just outrageous. And so I am a firm believer of everything should be on a menu, everything. And you should never, like your service writers and everyone should never talk about the hourly rate ever. Now, everything that's on your menu should be based off of an hourly rate, you know, internally. But the bottom line is, is that you never want to talk about $125 an hour. That's terrible. So back up to the tires. So on your menu... If you used to have $50, you know, tire install, and if you buy it from the internet, $75, flip it. Tire installs are 75 bucks. If you buy the tire from me, 50 bucks. And you can explain to the customer that you're glad to give them a $25 discount because you're going to make a little bit of money on the tire, a little bit of money on labor, and you can afford to do that. And you appreciate their business and you want to earn their business. And by flipping the thing, what happens is, is that when the guy does walk in with the tire that he bought from the internet, he looks up at the menu and he says, oh man, 75 bucks. If I would have bought it here, I could have saved 25 bucks. It's not even worth buying on the internet. And at my dealership, we did that. And over the course of about a year, I started seeing tire sales going back up again. And, you know, it's just a, a small little way of wording it that, took the the element of surprise and the bashing of the customer out and actually praised them for doing what you're trying to get them to do. And then at the same time, when they did bring the tire in from the internet, you did make an extra 25 bucks over what you normally would have charged. 
you know, and normally we're going to charge 50 bucks anyway. So all of a sudden you, your pressure, your blood pressure doesn't raise up so much when you see walk, the guy walking in with a, with a um, mailing label on his tire. Well, right. So. You, you, you know, really effectively what that is that you did and that you would recommend a dealer at least trying if they're doing this other approach, the, the, the standardized approach that we see nowadays, you're asking them to work incentives from a positive perspective, right? Yep. To, to line up a, a consumer to see they're being rewarded for something rather than being what? You know, like <laughs> they're getting, they're in trouble. Pen- you know? Penalized. Yeah, you're, you're here's, penalized. Your, here's your penalty. We're leveling a little tax against you for this. I, yeah. I, I'm a big believer in that. And honestly, it's, it, could be, it could be something that's very apparent depending on, you know, uh, where it's put in the store and how, you know, much uh, focus is on it in the conversations or whatever. But I think it's definitely something where on the uh, kind of more subliminal level, that's the implication, right? The implication is we're, we're going to reward our customers for doing more business with us, uh, you know, as simple as a, what do they call the uh, fitness trackers and things that people wear on the wrists and it, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it rewards you. It buzzes just right when you hit your goal and everything. I mean, these are all the things that, that we know in society now that help humans do more of the things that they want to do. Mm-hmm. Why not do that same sort of thing is, is again, reward them in a way, even if you're flipping the script, it didn't really change what you're doing, but you're, you're showcasing that positive reward. Yeah. I think that's smart. I think it's really smart. Yeah. One, one other side of the internet that I did that I think is super important is to create a loyalty program. You know, I, I get my hair cut the same place because of loyalty. I get my oil changed at the same place because of loyalty. I buy my airline at the same place because of loyalty. I buy my groceries at the same place because of loyalty. I buy my gas at the same place because of loyalty. Mm-hmm. And those loyalty rewards are something that the world is very, very, very much involved in. Pretty much every consumer is involved in some type of loyalty program out there. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, I think the motorcycle industry is far behind the loyalty program and even the dealers that do have loyalty programs. I honestly believe that they hate to even bring it up because the customer has loyalty points and they hate to give away the margin to give them as loyalty points. So they don't ever bring it up. Uh, yeah. So a loyalty program doesn't do any good if you're not using it every single time that the consumer comes in. I actually have a an app on my phone for Whataburger of all places, uh-huh. and I and I get free breakfast taquitos all the time because of loyalty, you know. And so, so when I started my loyalty program, as simple as I printed a business card on the back of it, it had ten squares. I ordered I don't know from I think Office Max or someplace a small little stamp. My my name in my dealership was Action Motorsports, so I had a little stamp with an AMS on it and a circle around it. And so we used that stamp to stamp it. And every time somebody came in and bought $100 worth of something, I think they got one stamp, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Whenever they had 10 stamps, they had, uh, I think it was, I forget what it was, another 100 bucks or something like that. I forget, I forget how it all worked. And, and so, but what we did was every person that walked in the store, before we rang them out, we said, do you have any loyalty points? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah. And they'd grab in a card. They'd get their card out. And they would have, you know, two or three stamps. We would charge them for their item. We'd stamp their card and away they go. And 
the cool part was that I also would give loyalty points. And, and eventually I got very sophisticated with my loyalty program because Lightspeed actually has a really, really sophisticated loyalty program that you can change the loyalty depending on what they're doing. If they're buying um, a part, they can get a certain loyalty percentage based on the dollar volume. If they're um, checking out on a RO, if they're, you know, if their RO is done and they're, they're, picking up their bike they can get a certain amount if they're buying a bike they can get a certain amount um you can do loyalty points for instead of doing discounts at open houses you can do loyalty points and all that does is it basically creates a kind of a cash pot for all these customers that are out there that basically have to come back to you to ever use them they can't use them anywhere else and so it pretty much it almost ensures loyalty and almost ensures door swings. And so when I was doing it, I was adamant with my staff to make sure that they asked every time now on Lightspeed, you can actually see loyalty points right there, but just to make sure they would ask and say, do you want to use your loyalty points now? And if they didn't want to, if they wanted to save it up and have a thousand dollars come off of a bike, it didn't matter because if they really had a thousand dollars worth of loyalty points, that means that they spent a ton of money on my dealership. You know, I mean, I've done as much as I had, you know, we didn't have a forklift. And when customers would be standing around, a semi would back up to the back of the shop and dump off 40 dirt bikes at one time. Customers would help us unload bikes. I'd give them some loyalty points, you know, <laughs> and, you know, all, all it does. And, and I would even let them use their loyalty points like on their next trip or whatever on the invoice. So say, say a guy comes in, he buys $100 worth of stuff. I let him use his loyalty points, but I also gave him loyalty points for that sale uh-huh. because I wanted him to never have zero loyalty. Yep. So he always had cash in his account. And with the Lightspeed one, you can actually have an app that basically shows you all your purchases, all your points you've used, all your points you've gained. Um, and it's not super cheap. I mean, anything with Lightspeed does cost some money to do, uh-huh. but it's a really easy way for you to maintain your loyalty program um, watch your loyalty program and you can also get a bunch of statistics and information from it to help you make decisions based on what your business is doing too. Well, I liked um, the way when you first were obviously describing it, I was thinking, I'm thinking, okay, so I don't know. I've not been in a parts department and, and working the one in so many years. I'm thinking, okay, what are dealers doing in, in power sports right now? Do they have, you know, special apps that a third party company is doing? You said it's in light speed. And I like the idea that the way you phrased it, which was you could, not make it too difficult, literally a card with a special little stamper or puncher that's that's unique and obviously something you can identify as legit versus not. And if somebody's going to try to pull the wool over your eyes or whatever. But I like the idea that you've taken away making it too difficult so it's a goal you never do. Like, oh, we're going to do it one day. I have to go and get the app and I have to talk to the people and plan the budget for the whole nine yards. But I like what you just said is that obviously you can just – Keep it simple, make the program happen, start getting people again. This is another positive. You're essentially, it's, it, I don't know if it's necessarily reinforcement, but you're definitely using a positive approach to get them to want to spend money with you, right? Yes. So, I, you know, obviously this, maybe it's a recurring theme with you. Maybe that's what you did in your whole business. And, you know, a lot of this, uh, you know, getting, getting the hook in in a positive way and uh, they don't know that they've been, you know, that they're a fish, you know, or whatever, not that it's a bad yeah. thing. <laughs> So, so one thing just to kind of lend a little credibility to 
my past. I've actually had two dealerships. And the last one that I had was a KTM Husqvarna dealership. And we sold over the last four years, we were averaging just under and right about 300 units of a, um, a year. And that's dirt bikes and pretty much only dirt bikes. And so I don't know if anybody listening to this podcast is selling 300 dirt bikes out there, but I kind of doubt there's very many that are. <laughs> and one of the things that to get to a point of selling 300 dirt bikes, I had to come up with creative ways of bringing business into my dealership. I also sold 300 dirt bikes and probably never sold more than 15 in the county that my dealership was in per year. Uh So that means that 285 of those dirt bikes were bought out of our county. And and a lot of them were even out of the state. Uh So I was really good at coming up with ideas. This loyalty program is one of them. You know, and it kept people from, I mean, people would literally call on the phone because we didn't have a full, I mean, we had a little bit of online stuff available, uh, but we didn't have a full online uh, parts and accessory department that you could just go on there and buy stuff from. And so people literally would just call on the phone and say, hey, you know, I just want to buy XYZ. Can you ship it to me? Just basically the same thing as the, what they're doing online, but they're actually talking to somebody instead. And I feel like, I know every time I buy something online, I feel like that lack of connection to a human being. Um, I'm always like, well, I just hope it, I hope it went through right. I hope I end up getting it right. I hope it's not damaged. You know what I mean? There's so many mm-hmm. questions. Yep. And, you know, I created an environment that my consumers all felt really comfortable with just calling the shop up, talking to one of us, one of the parts associates, myself, whoever, and placing an order, and we just ship it out the next day. And again, that's another whole side of things that I hear dealers all the time just saying, no, we don't have it. Or even worse, they say, no, we don't have it. But XYZ dealer down the road does because on Lightspeed, there's a locator and they can actually see who has it locally. And again, when, when we're all scraping for pennies, like we are a lot of times at dealerships, you know, the bottom line is, is that get your staff and get your people to understand that. There is no way in the world that you should ever be giving out information about where to go get it. It's just that's the craziest thing in the whole world to me when I'm standing there. And not only does a person just say, no, we don't have it and hang up the phone, but also when they say, no, we don't have it, the XYZ dealer does. And, you know, they, I think they feel like they're just doing some service to the customer and helping the customer out. But honestly, all the customer and that's the bottom line. Well, you also talked about, um, or we talked about prior um, unit sales, right? And, and, um, you know, like you had said earlier in this conversation, you know, you had done from zero to 300 units a year at a dealer Mm -hmm. that's KTM and Husky. Uh, You know, that feels like a big number to me, like you say, especially when, I don't know if, you know, plenty of people that listen to this might be from the East Coast or whatever, where you're talking about where your dealership was, because I've been to it. it was before you. Well, I've been to that area before you uh, put that shop there, right? But I guess it was, what was it before you bought that shop? It was something else, wasn't it? The what Action Motorsports? Yeah. Well, nothing there. Was it just, you You opened it maybe like the year I left Texas, I think is when you opened I, I it. I opened it in 2007. Yeah, that's the year I left. So, so I remember, and obviously I'm only pointing this out because it's not like we're saying the dealership was smack dab in the middle of DFW, right? You're, yeah. you're pretty far out uh, at the edge of stuff. Now, you, now you are on the way to some really good riding areas, 
but yeah. it's not like it's not like everybody showed up on a Sunday, right, to buy their bike on the way to the riding yeah. area. So you yeah. you definitely did a lot of work to put out those sort of numbers. I would say based on me knowing exactly where that shop uh, is and, and how far remote it is. But yeah. Um, yeah. with, I mean, you know, I don't know how much you get to spend time with guys talking about you know that kind of that front of house and unit sales, new and used. But uh, right now, what are you seeing that? you know, that you, you think you'd like to institute change on, like what's broken on that end of the dealership currently as you walk in now of your stores? When, when I say I did 300 units, I did about 150 new and 150 used every year. And the, the used bike market, I feel, is the most lucrative part of unit sales, bottom line. Um, there is nothing that uh, creates the same... Um, connection to the customer than buying a good used motorcycle. Um, so what I did that I feel was different is that a lot of dealers, especially in the dirt bike world, let's just kind of focus on the dirt bike world for a second mm-hmm. here. The dirt bike world, a lot of dealers, they hate taking used dirt bikes because they're always a problem and they always create problems. The customers always come back with problems. They're always leaking oil out of the counter chest rockets or out of the forks or something and they're, and they don't have kickstands. So they're all kind of leaning on each other back in the service department, hidden in the back of the shop. And so you're basically taking a possibility of doubling your money. And there's not anything in your shop that you can double your money on other than used bikes. And you're not showcasing it. So what I did was I took all the used bikes. I bought them right or I took them on trade right and I invested into them. I also brought them front and center. When you walked in the front door of my shop, the whole front row, and you had to either turn right or left, you never got to walk straight to the parts counter. You had to walk through the building to get to the parts counter. Uh-huh. Um, but the whole front row was always new bikes, or I mean, used bikes. And so I would take a used bike, and if, say, a KTM 350 has a 80-hour average lifespan on it um, before you need to put a piston ring in it. If I took a 350 KTM in on trade that had 80 hours on it, I would in turn put a piston ring in it. Uh-huh. I would charge the the sales the sales unit and let the service department actually build a work order on it. And I would let that service department make a little bit of money, put a piston in that thing. We would also throw a set of uh, lesser expensive tires, I want to say, but not horrible tires. Uh, Shinko is a great brand and it's a brand I happen to sell daily and we do very, very well with at WPS and Western Power Sports. Uh-huh. Um, Shinko tires are a great way to create value in used units. So if you take a, you know, anything, a street bike, dirt bike, anything, you put a, a hundred to $200 worth of tires on it. Even if the tires that were on it were kind of okay, it doesn't matter when they're brand new. Uh-huh. That customer, it, it brings that bike level up 500 bucks right there. Uh-huh. So now you've got another $300, $350 worth of profit in that unit just by throwing a set of brand new inexpensive tires on it. Uh-huh. Um, you so know, we, as a, let me jump in because as a side point, when you say that, it makes me think of the fact that when, if I'm buying a new or used motorcycle myself personally, right? Mm-hmm. I think back to when I was a rider and a racer as a young man and now an adult with, you know, definitely more ability to pay for the service to be done than I have time to do certain things myself, which is a, you know, mixed blessing. It means that I'm spending more money. Someone else is using my, 
money toward my things. But I only point out that what you say really hits home because I can tell you if I buy a new or used motorcycle, I rarely have something with fresh tires, yeah. <laughs> you know, because by the time you ride it one time, the front edges of if it's round off, if something's not chunked off from where you went being full of rocks or whatever. So I think what you point out is a huge thing. You know, like you say, put a set of Shinkos on there that aren't outrageously priced. The value is very high. And the fact of the matter is that's a fresh motorcycle to somebody probably better than 99% of the time when they're going to be riding in the future or any other machine they have. So if the, if the fork seals are leaking, fix them. If the counter shaft's leaking, fix it, put it on a stand so that it's not leaning on something or it's not, you know, and display it just like you probably display your brand new bikes out there in your showroom. And actually, to be honest with you, I saw, there was times where my showroom had more used bikes than they had brand new bikes in it. And um, most people honestly couldn't even tell the difference because I also was the guy that I um, would would not be scared to throw a set of plastic on, a set of graphics or a set of takeoff plastic that maybe a customer came in to buy a new bike. And we did a lot of modifications and a lot of um, upgrading and, and created values and sales. But we, we kind of called ourselves the Orange County Choppers of, of dirt bikes because we powder-coated frames. We swapped orange plastic for white plastic. We graphicked every single bike that went out of there pretty much. Um, and that was all part of creating a brand that people wanted to be a part of by putting Action Motorsports graphics on them. Uh-huh. And we never gave them away. We, our customers were glad to pay for those graphics all the time because they were professional. They looked cool. They changed yearly. And it was, it always let them customize and specialize their bike for them personally. And then their takeoff plastic that did have graphics on or whatever could be the plastic I would put on a used bike, or I would put, you know, brand new, uh, like a Cherubis or something on it. And I would put some graphics on just, just whatever. But my bikes that were in the showroom, I always felt like they literally were as good as a new bike, but for a guy that just couldn't afford a new bike. And I wanted that guy to feel that way. I wanted that gal to feel that way. And I wanted them to be able to go. And, and honestly, every once in a while, one would bite us in the butt. There would be something that we didn't catch or couldn't have caught. And they'll get out and they'll start riding it and something will happen. And I'll say, bring it back. We'll take care of it. Every time. Never, never a question. And again, that's back to investing into the brand and building that brand and that loyalty. And then all of a sudden, this used bike market that you have starts growing and growing. And part of that is cycle trader or some type of advertisement. And you're not you know, paid. To, you're not paid to say that, by the way, today. But thank you. <laughs> but it was a big part of my business. And so you know, so so say you have thirty or forty used bikes on your floor, you need to advertise them because then here's the other cool part about it. Once a guy drives from Oklahoma or Tennessee or something to buy a bike, you got him. They're not going to turn around and go home without that bike. You don't have to wheel and deal quite as much. And when you're when you're dealing on brand new bikes, there's 50 of those things out there somewhere that uh-huh. the guy could go buy them. When you're done, when you're talking about used bikes, there's no two alike. Not uh-huh. there's no way to compare. There's no no apples to apples on that one. Uh-huh. So the bottom line is is that you can always you know showcase your your product and and use sources like Cycle Trader as a way to reach the consumer. And, you know, their, their search engine optimization through their gigantic, you know, uh-huh. years and years of selling motorcycles and everything else in the world um, really helps you reach customers that you would never reach. And then 
at that point, then you, you go back to the whole basis of trying to get them to buy some, uh, you know, some gear and some hand guards and some this and some that. Another big part was I never let a used bike come in and I left all the stuff on it. I would take a lot of stuff back off of those bikes. Like they would trade them in with hand guards and trade them in with steering dampers and trade them in with all kinds of different accessories on them. Sometimes even exhaust pipes. If I had a stock pipe, I'd throw a stock pipe on it uh-huh. because what that did was that created, you know, pretty much nobody wants to ride a dirt bike with a stock pipe, but I would sell the guy the, and, and a, if I had a brand new takeoff stock pipe that looked good, I would take that pipe and put it on the used bike, take the used pipe, put it on eBay, sell it again, uh-huh. just spending money. I would sell the hand guards. I would sell the steering damper, everything on, on eBay and then sell new parts through my dealership all day long to the consumer that was buying the used bike. Mm-hmm. And again, that was just another whole big picture profit center, mm-hmm. you know, that a lot of people and, and the whole eBay thing, you know, that's a whole nother thing. I have a little bit of a frustration sometimes is that OBS parts seems to be such a, and just to kind of turn the corner on this thing, mm-hmm. OBS parts seems to be such a big concern for everyone. And man, just hire somebody to put them all on eBay and get rid of them. Be done with it. You know, turn that cash into cash that you can buy new stuff and buy some fresh inventory. If you keep not buying new stuff and not moving forward because you have this OBS inventory, then the door is going to stop swinging. I'm sorry. That's just a fact. People are not going to come in and look at the same old helmet that's been there forever, the same gear or the same whatever you have hanging on your walls that's dusty and old. You know, so you need to to have a plan on how you're going to get rid of OBS inventory. And eBay is the easiest way. Put it on there. Don't be afraid to lose a little bit of money on it because the bottom line is, you know, something out of something is way better than nothing out of something. Yeah, cash it out yeah. and cut yourself yeah. free from it. And you yeah. also mentioned at one point in our conversation, you mentioned uh, – kind of in selection of let's say for example gear or whatever if we're talking about you know riding gear those sort of things you talked about not going as wide as you go deep right and and i yeah. and I, I don't know that i've ever thought of it from that approach but as i was as we were talking before it kind of started resonating yeah that makes sense that way you've got some depth and some selection and you, you know you're not so lean uh yeah in it, but... so so what happens in the dealerships and uh, Honestly, to be honest with you, my dealership might be in just as guilty as anyone's at this part. But now that I'm a rep, I see it over and over and over again. <laughs> you'll have a dealer that you'll go in and you'll show them all these new helmets from Fly Racing or something. Uh-huh. And all these helmets um, come in. There may be in one model helmet. There may be 10 different colors, you know. And so the dealer will say, okay, I'll take a small green, a medium red, a large blue, extra large orange and a double X black. And that way I'll have one of everything. Well, the problem is, is that no matter what you have, the chances of it hitting home to the customer, once they see all the colors is slim and none. And so, so the important thing and, and my, my uh, training that I've gotten from WPS and, and what I've seen actually happening on the, on the, uh, the streets when I'm in the dealerships is that, you buy less colorways, but buy from extra small through double X so that no matter what the, you, the, the customer, if you give them too much information, then they have too much to, to pick from. The less they have to pick from, 
the more dar- narrowed down the, the, the pick is, the more likely you have to close the deal. Uh-huh. And so if you bring in a full uh, run of black helmets, a full run of red helmets, a full run of blue helmets, instead of having six different colors uh-huh. and not full runs, your chance of actually selling a helmet is so much better. And the consumer, they may come in wanting a yellow helmet and you don't have a yellow helmet, but once they start you know, looking at them and talking about them and pretty soon they're like, ah, what the heck? I'll take the black one, you know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But if you have a full run, you can do that. If you don't have a full run, then you can't do that. Yep. And a lot of dealers will have in any one product, whether it's tires, whether it's um, off-road gear, whether it's light bars or whatever, they'll have six different brands on their walls. And then you try to, then you dilute not only the brand, but you dilute sizes, colors, models, and everything else with that. Uh-huh. Pretty soon you have nothing of anything, but a whole lot of everything. <laughs> And it just becomes a mess and you can't sell anything, mm-hmm. you know? Well, and how frustrating is it for that individual, that experience for that customer when they come in and you've got all the stuff under, you know, under the sun, it would appear. And when they go and they're like, oh, they don't have my size and helmet, like your medium or whatever. For some reason, you're sold out of the two mediums that you had in two different colors or whatever. And they got to get nothing yeah. for them. That's obviously yep. not what you want, where you want them to end up. And obviously, like you're saying, then you could even have some depth. Maybe you say, well, I'm, I'm doubled up in large on black and I've, you know, two of those, two of the mediums or whatever, you know, like you say. If, if the consumer comes in and they have a need, they will curtail their personal wants, needs, and desires a little bit towards what you have in stock. Uh-huh. Now, if it's way off, like if it's pink <laughs> and the guy's not going to wear a pink helmet, then that, they're not going to buy it, obviously. But most of the time, if you have some somewhat basic colors or, or sizes or shapes or whatever the item may be, if you have a decent, good, better, best, and then you have um, a full run of each of them, like light bars, you have a 13, you have a 20, you have a 27, and you have a 35, um, don't miss one, you know, because the guy may have a, a distinct reason for wanting a 27 and you don't have one or something. Uh-huh. You know, helmets, the same thing, you know, like we already kind of did was don't do the every other size is a different color kind of thing. <laughs> and um, but but just if you clean that all up, then the consumer isn't so. Um, so confused whenever they get there that it takes also it takes your staff time to try to get them pinpointed to what they really want. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you have the money to stock Grenade CD and Alpine Star boots, which are all high-end boots, you don't really want to stock those like that. You want to stock maybe Alpine Stars, but stock Tech 7s and Tech 10s or, or Tech 3s, Tech 7s, and Tech 10s that have a good, better, best. Uh-huh. And, then, and then you've narrowed down the decision that, oh, Alpine Stars are the best because it's what they sell, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. And that's what your staff's going to be educated on too. That's the whole other side of it. The more brands you have and the more things you have the harder it is for your staff to have any education on any of them uh-huh. and so therefore it's a lot harder to sell something that you don't know anything about uh-huh. and and the human um even the best of salespeople, if they don't know a lot about a product it's they tend to not be as energetic towards the sales process uh-huh. and therefore their close ratio is is a whole lot lower well you've got you know if you've got you know, your staff there that understands the products and somebody comes in and in the case, like you're saying, and they come in and they want Garnet and that's kind of what they know. And you're like, well, 
I know you're looking for the, whatever the SG 12, whatever the, you know, whatever the sort of level caliber you're looking for. Have you ever tried on the Alpine star tech 10, you know, obviously yeah. that, you know, having the selection there and having a comparable, you know, and knowing, you know, obviously, like you say, I think that you're right. The consumers will, as much as I think we give crap to consumers when it's not us for how, you know, nitpicky they can be about things. I think you're spot on. Cause I know that I do it frequently. You go in with your heart set on something and you're immediately like, Oh yeah, they don't have it. Okay. But you, you were ready to spend some money. It's kind of burning a hole in your pocket. You wanted that desire filled on this trip on the drive there. You literally didn't think that way, but that's what your body was telling itself. You were yep. about to get a reward on this trip. Right. So when the right person's there and they're like, oh man, you know, you're not missing out. Those are great boots, but I can tell you what else is great. This other choice, you know, let me yeah. show you those, you know? So I yep. think like, with the right folks in business, like you're saying, you know, the, the conversation and they, and they will bend to that will, I think so. Right. Um, yeah. And as far as this, your staff at your dealership goes, you know, the one thing that I think is super important is to um, like, I always, every managerial type position I've been in, I always wanted my staff to make more money than I did every time. Because if they're that good, they're making that much money. Obviously I'm making that much money. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I wanted them to be, um, I wanted my parts guy to be a better parts guy than what I could be at my dealership. I wanted my service guy to be a better technician than I could be at my dealership. I wanted my sales staff and for unit sales to be better than I was at closing and everything else. And even if you can't find that person, you can actually create somebody that's better than you are by giving them the right tools and the right resources instead of just letting them fumble around and try to figure it out on their own. And so that was another thing that I was really um, kind of adamant about at my dealership was just to create awesome staff. And um, I took care of them. Uh, many of them left and came back multiple times sometimes. And, you know, because the work environment, uh, we hustled and we worked hard. So there was always times where they thought like the grass was greener on the other side. But mm -hmm. then once they would get out and go and do it, then they would find out, oh, well, yeah. There's a reason why the, you know, the success of Action Motorsports was there or whatever. So, mm -hmm. you know, so a lot of the, a lot of the staff would kind of rotate in and out and come back. But, you know, don't be scared to educate your staff because, you know, everyone's always so worried about educating somebody and then they just leave. Well, if you take care of them, they don't just leave. There are parts guys that have been parts guys for 30 years. There are technicians that have been technicians for 30 years and there are sales guys and gals that have been sales guys and gals for 30 years and at the same dealerships. And it's just a matter of treating them fair, treating them like you care about them, and but also giving them the tools to be successful and, and not being scared to create bonus programs and goals and everything else to create um, an environment that they thrive in. And, you know, just sitting there waiting for people to come in that doesn't do that. Well, I know that, you know, I, I, I think, I think we talked about it and you heard it, but you, Ryan McPherson was on with me last week mm -hmm. on episode 14 and, you know, that's kind of was his position, you know, he's fired up, he's empowered by the place he works. And in discussing, it's like, well, who's, you know, who's your most kick-ass rep? He names you, right? So <laughs> I, it's funny that, you know, I can see obviously in having this conversation with you where a guy that has you as his rep, 
you know, you obviously you're, you're a guy out there passionately doing this and, and empowering these guys to help them, you know, take care of customers, make money, this round and round, you know, circle, keep doing what you're doing in this business. Uh, obviously that, you know, begins to ring true. And, and he's an example of somebody, I think with, um, you know, social media push on his own, his own brand kind of within the brand of where he works. And yeah, it sounds like you guys are on the same page for that, for sure. And that just goes a hundred percent back to what I just got done saying. Cre- you can create somebody that's better than you are at doing any one job. Yeah. Because as a manager, as a general manager, as a department manager, as an owner, whatever, you have a lot of things to think about, and a lot of things to um, watch and control, and and future planning and budgeting and uh, you know whatever. You, you, there's a lot of things you have to deal with dealing with manufacturers and and distributors and everything else. And, you know, uh, hashtag um, ask for Skippy, which is Ryan McPherson. Yeah. McPherson. <laughs> I always call him McPherson. He gets so mad. <laughs> Ryan, Ryan McPherson. Uh, hashtag ask for Skippy. Um, he's a prime example of that. You know, he's yeah. a guy that obviously has learned a lot from a lot of people. And I go in there and he sits down at 830 in the morning with a pad and a pencil and sits there and takes notes of everything that I'm teaching them, whether I'm in there with Scorpion or Nav Atlas or it doesn't matter, fly racing, it, whatever brand I walk in there with. And I have something new that I want to educate the guys on. I, I give them the information and then he, he picks up the ball and actually researches it even a little bit more and gets a little more information. Then he does his, like you said, branding a brand within the brand. Um, he goes online and does a bunch of social media stuff. He's driving people into the business. People all the time walk in there and go, hey, where's that Skippy guy at? You know? And um, so the bottom line is that he ends up with more customers than maybe some of the other kids that are in there too because he's bringing some of those people into the business. And, um, you know, and we're all, we're all in commission-based pay or should be anyway. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a, a, another little slippery slope that um, some dealers aren't doing commission-based pay for parts department guys and that is is not great there needs to be something even if it's not a full commission-based pay there needs to be some bonus program and some structure to get them fired up and wanting to sell parts and get them out from behind the counter and get them on the floor get them out there talking with customers and and you know it's just it's a simple it's a simple process the human being really likes to be challenged and the more that they have to gain from being challenged, the more they will perform. And that's the bottom line. Well, you talked about, you know, bonuses, incentives, those sort of things kind of cross um, uh, boundaries, you know, some of those sort of programs within a dealership between departments. And uh, I don't know if you heard, but I had had uh, a few ago, I had a guy named Jim Boschen on who's out of Massachusetts and he's uh, he's at an Acura dealer. He's been a parts manager at an Acura dealer for a lot of years now, like 20 or 30 years. I forget what he told me, but he's been there a long, long time, but he's a, he's an ex pro motocrosser, still rides, still super passionate about it, which is what we had the connection on and uh, had him on the podcast. But he talked about that, about how he's like, I don't really know if they do it that if they do it or if they do it well in power sports, cause he doesn't work in power sports, but he's like in automotive. He's like, man, if, you know, if you're helping somebody buy a car or if, if, if the other department's helping somebody with an accessory or add on parts for a, there's everybody gets taken care of when everybody chips in, there's, there's programs built for that. 
And I don't know if, you know, cause I've been out of working at a dealership the last, you know, several years now it's been probably 10 years since I've worked in a dealership. So I don't know, do are guys at dealership doing that? Are they, they, are they doing like kind of the way you had done it? Or do you, do you find that a lot of them are, you know, not doing that? The good ones are doing everything right usually. And the bad ones are not doing everything right. Okay. And there's some variations in the middle there, but, um, you know, there's there's a you know, there's so many little things that a dealership can do to make pretty big differences in the whole bottom line on the dealership uh-huh. um, that uh, seems simple. And as uh, as we go longer into this podcast, there's little details that I'd like to bring up that are totally simple. Um, you know, just to help build that bottom, that, uh, bottom line profitability. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, one of the things is, is that I have a, con- a couple dealers that, um, only buy mid price point and down stuff. And they're mm-hmm. constantly trying to find cheaper stuff to buy. The problem with that is you're racing to the bottom <laughs> because if you have less expensive items, you have less profit. Bottom line, it doesn't matter if you have a, a $50 helmet with 60% margin, your profit on that helmet still is going to be less than a $500 helmet at 30% margin. Yep. And, you know, one thing I tell all my dealers all the time is you can't, you can't pay your bills with margin. You can only pay it with profit. Uh-huh. And so it's really important to not race your way down and getting your staff to not do that is the hardest thing to do because it's easy. Um, was at a dealership today and uh, there's kind of a young kid uh, behind the parts counter and we were having a conversation about some stuff like this and a guy came in and wanted to buy a winch and then he said well this winch is 350 bucks and the guy said oh do you have anything cheaper and he goes well yeah I can get it over here from XYZ company for 199 bucks and so after he left I did the math on a piece of paper and I showed him I said okay so let's let's go through this I showed them the profit on both. I showed them the margin on both. And I said, you understand that it's your job to make sure that the electric bill gets paid, the phone bill gets paid, you get paid, and everyone else here gets paid. And it's your job to make sure that you get as much profit into this business as you can possibly get, because that's what makes you valuable. And so if you ever want to make more money and you ever want to be more of a person of um, commanding abilities and commanding price point, as far as your personal income goes, you have to do something to do that. And I said, by just racing to the bottom, like you did there with that guy, you didn't even try to sell him the higher price part. You didn't talk to him about the features and benefits. You didn't talk to him. All, all he said was, you got anything cheaper? And you went straight to the cheapest thing you could get. And, and basically, it was a $60, um, mar- or $60 profit winch versus a $120 profit winch. And again, you don't, you don't pay the bills with margin. You pay the bills with profit. And so he raced himself down. And dealerships in themselves actually can get to the point where if you have the wrong people in charge of what's, what's being bought – that person can can bring the dealership down to a level that they could sell three times as much as the next dealer and still not have the same profit 
Because if you're selling hundred dollar helmets all day long and not selling five and six hundred dollar helmets all day long, then you're ne- there's no way to ever catch up on that profit that you're missing that the dealer that is selling five and six hundred dollar helmets. Mm-hmm. Now, the difference is you have to be a salesperson to sell a five or six hundred dollar. Yeah, helmet. I was about you to say to be- that's that's the difference between the the quote lay down of. Yeah, yeah, we've got that. Oh, something cheaper? Yeah, sure, I got this. Versus yeah, the, the... the order taker versus the salesperson. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and when you ask, I, I mean, I've been in dealerships where I've said, what's your, what's your job here? And, you know, and a, a parts guy would say, I'm, I'm parts, parts uh, associate or whatever the dealership calls them at that point. <laughs> and and uh, I said, oh, yeah? I said, so how are you in sales? Well, I'm not in sales. I'm in parts. And I just shake my head and go, oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Because the service writer, the service man, the parts man, the parts manager, the finance guy, the general manager, every person. There's not a person on the property that's on the payroll that's not a salesperson. Not one. Even a kid that's sweeping the floor needs to be able to talk to a customer and help build that brand. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like it's so important to make sure that everyone understands that their job is sales. Every every job in the building, even the, the the person that does nothing but title work, when they walk out of that office and have to walk through the showroom, they need to say hi. They need to you know uh, acknowledge customers, say thank you, whatever. Just just do whatever you can do to make sure that that customer feels welcome and that they're at the right place. And that's all sales. That's just selling the brand at that point not not a specific item uh-huh. so you know that's that's a whole other thing another little just kind of a couple little things just real quick too um so in the parts department you know and this is one of those taboo things a lot of people don't want to hear about but you know the, the the bottom line on the parts department is is that if yes a consumer the dealers are getting filthy rich we all know that are in this podcast we all know that that are listening to this podcast there's very few dealers getting rich. So you have to do some stuff that um, the consumer would actually not really like to hear, honestly, but you have to do some stuff. One of the things that I think is super important is you take every, and you can do this like through light speed. It's super simple. You just set the light speed up, but you can take every part and round it from anything that has, if it's $2 and one cent, it rounds up to $2 and 59 cents. If everything goes up to 59 and then anything above 59 goes up to 99. So mm-hmm. everything in the building has a 99 on the end of it. Now that there's no 95s, there's no 97s, there's no 90s, there's no nothing. It's either 59 or 99 because that little bit of rounding up, those little pieces of percentages on each part, the consumer never notices that. They cannot notice it. It's, 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 it's an infinitely impossible way for you to gain profit without the consumer knowing, noticing it. So that's one of the things that I'm always uh, advocate of. And, and I, I don't see it being exercised as much. And um, the other little thing, if we put one more little exclamation point on this podcast is I am a firm believer in the assumption of clothes. And if, if you don't know what this is, you need to look it up. You need to read about it. You need to understand it because closing is the hardest part of sales. And again, even closing the sale of a lever for a dirt bike, you have to be able to close it. 
And so if you get good at the assumption of clothes, which means that you don't even ask the guy, are you, you know, are you, do you want to buy this lever? Because there's, that's a yes and no answer. And the, the <laughs> consumer tends to always say no when it comes to buying stuff. Um, but, and there's books about that too. You can read them. Um, but the, but the assumption of clothes is one of those things that, you get to a point where you're you're talking to the customer, and I always tell all, every uh, sales associate of any type or any person in a dealership, you've got two ears and one one mouth. You talk to, one times to every two things that you listen, uh, because the, you talk to the consumer, you find what is the value to them, and when when value exceeds the cost, then it's easy to close it. But if you don't ask for the close, you're never going to get it. And if you just ask for the clothes, as in, all right, you want to go ahead and buy this motorcycle? Chances are you're 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 not even at a fifty-fifty chance there. <laughs> it's literally an eighty-twenty that he's going to say no, so or she. And so the bottom line is, is that instead of asking if they're ready to buy this thing, you just say, okay, so obviously this is the bike for you. Are you going to finance it, or are you going to? give the the cash or how how do you want to pay for this you know you just go right into the closing you move you you move to the next step yeah once you've gotten signals that yeah you 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 don't ask about the close you go right into the close you just walk right through that thing and they're before they know it they're sitting in the finance department buying a buck Uh and honestly i can tell you from experience 90 percent of the customers would rather that you shut up stop talking about it and get them to the point where they're paying for it quicker and take away the whole long process that some people go through trying to get them to basically give up and, and give them their money because uh-huh. they're tired of talking to this guy. You know, just again, it's all, you know, once you find the value, you know, I used to all the time I had, I had a couple of salespeople that they would get frustrated with me whenever I would do this, but they would, they would come to me and they would say, Hey, this guy wants to give us 7,500 for this bike. I'm at eight grand. What do you want me to do? You want me to give them, give it to him for 7,500. And I'd say, no, I said, let's go up. And they'd be like, what? I'd say, watch this. And I would go out and I would talk to the customer a little bit and I'd introduce myself and say, Hey, you know, what are you doing? What are you getting? You know, so-and-so, you know, whatever my sales guy or girl was at the time, you know, said that we're kind of a little bit off on our price, you know, so, so are you getting any accessories for this thing or what's your thing? And well, yeah, I'm getting hand guards. And, and so what about an exhaust pipe? Well, you know, I don't know. I'll probably get that one after I get out of here or whatever. And, and the bottom line is, is that I all the time could take, a guy that wanted to pay seventy five for an eight thousand dollar bike and get eighty five hundred dollars out of them every time, <laughs> and it's because I would find the valuable part, the 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 point that the value exceeded the cost, uh-huh. whether whether it was an exhaust pipe, whether it was something, whatever it was, a set of gear, something, and then I would discount that a little bit so that he saw value in putting that into the deal, uh-huh. and I actually would go up in price. And give him more value by giving him a little bit of a deal on something and get more money out of him and, and close the deal. Uh-huh. And, and because he said, you know, if, if he got the right price, he, he was going to buy it. He already told my, my sales associate that. 
So all I had to do is just figure out where, where value exceeded cost. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, another one of those things. At that point, you just do the assumption of sale. Again, back to check or cash. You know, mm -hmm. how, how are you going to pay for this? Mm -hmm. And um, so that was really, uh, really one of those things that I thought was a, a cool part of how we did it. And we, we were really good because we were in Decatur, Texas, of closing sales over the phone. And I, I struggle to ever hear very many dealers that are used to people just walking in because they're in a populated area. Mm -hmm. Those those dealers struggle hard on that part. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were kings. I mean, most bike we were selling used dirt bikes over the phone, sight unseen, just with pictures and talking to them. And we would have them bought and paid for it before they even came and picked them up. Mm -hmm. We did it all the time. And I guarantee you there's dealers listening to this right now that are like, no, you can't do that. And I'm telling you, you can well, if you get good at it. It's funny. I think about my years at dealership, especially when I was at te in Texas at dealerships. And I remember the process being very much so, you know, a consumer shows up, you know, you're having a conversation with them. You find out that in the conversation pretty quickly that they've just started the process. They're just doing some homework now. It was very common to be like, okay, you know, sales guys handing a card out if they've talked to them and they feel like they're not moving forward in it or another up walks in and they feel like that one's hotter and they'll move over to that one. Mm -hmm. But that was really common years ago. In the last few years, you know, we do surveys and get feedback, you know, from an example of cycle trader and RV trader and the things that I do. And it's not uncommon in, in automotive the same sort of way, but the consumer, the average consumer is less than two trips to a dealership for the purchase. So by the time they're there, you've got the ability, that, the strong likelihood that if you don't close them and get them down the road on it, they're buying it somewhere else because they typically do not make two visits to the dealership in the purchase process. So I was, uh, I was in a school where they said that if a, if a customer tells you they're going to buy the motorcycle or the part or the helmet or whatever, and they walk out the door and say they'll be back, 80% of them never show back up at that dealership. Yeah. Yep. And they tend to never show back up at that dealership too because their experience at the dealership wasn't a pleasant one. They didn't walk away from there feeling like they got the value that they were looking for. Right. So they didn't have, it wasn't that they had a bad experience, but they just didn't, it just, someone else down the road is going to be better at doing the clothes and it's going to actually give that customer the experience they really honestly walked in there looking for subconsciously. Mm -hmm. so. Well, you know, it's funny to think about buying signals and, and what happens in the human brain. And obviously I'm not a scientist to tell you, but you know, you talk about things like dopamine and different things that go on in your, in your body and in your brain with, uh, with being able to buy something. And, and obviously, like I said, if somebody shows up at your dealership and that, you know, like you say, they, they drove all the way there. Maybe it's even on their path of going home. The bad news is they still had to pull up, get out of the car. You know, if you're, a, if you're a consumer in Texas and it's June and you get out of the car, that means you have to get out of the AC and about catch on fire to go into a dealership and then go back into a hot car when you're done. So you really are sacrificing a little bit of your own comfort to go do it. You're obviously motivated. You need to make sure they, they leave with everything that you, you can help them lighten their wallet with you know so i've got one more big area i'd love to talk about if we can yeah absolutely and, and so the biggest so whenever i go into a dealership and i have an item it doesn't matter what it is if it's not displayed well or it's not um in an area that somebody can actually see it they're not going to buy it 
So we talk about tires and I always, you know, I always say that tires are the heartbeat of a dealership because if you look like you're in the tire business, you'll be in the tire business. So in other words, you have to have tires out front. You have to, people have to, every day, people just walking through the dealership for whatever means have to see that you have a good assortment of tires and then they'll come and buy tires from you. Well, when they come and buy tires from you, um, chances are they're going to have you install them. So their bikes and sit in the service department. You're going to get to upsell them on chains and sprockets and leaky fork seals or inspections or whatever is, is needing to be done on their bike. Or the other side of things are, is that while you're doing that tire change, they're in the parts department walking around. They may see some new Scosche um, phone mount, or they may see some nav Atlas display in a UTV or something that they've never seen before. And so, so, or they may see a whole new unit that they have never seen before and they might buy a new bike out of it. Uh-huh. Um, so it's important to make sure that you're in the business of whatever it is you're stocking. And basically how that happens is by, so, so in 90% of the dealerships, the sales department hates to put items on units because <laughs> they feel like that it just hinders their sale. Uh-huh. And the service department charges the heck out of them to do it. And then when the consumer comes in and wants to buy that red one and there's a bunch of stuff on it that that consumer doesn't want, and then the parts guy can't take it on return because now it's used. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it creates this whole big problem. Well, as a, as a general manager or an owner, you need to break down the walls. You need to make everyone understand that you're never going to sound, never going to sell the sound system that's in the box in the parts department, unless it's installed on a unit. You're never going to sell a set of wheels and tires that are stacked up in a corner unless they're on a unit. An exhaust system on a bike. You're never. You need to load motorcycles, ATVs, and UTVs up with accessories, and you need to be okay with it because that is how you're going to create value. You're also going to separate yourself from the guy down the street because. Again, new units are easy to compare apples to apples. Well, now when you have stuff on it, it's not apples to apples anymore. Uh-huh. Um, but you also need to, to create an environment within the dealership that it's not horrible for any one department to want to be a part of helping another department. So in my, in my dealership, if, if I was charging $100 an hour, labor from um, service to sales was 80 bucks an hour or something. If I was charging full retail for parts over the counter, parts to sales was 20% off or 20% over or something. There, there was always some discount because the best parts customer is probably your service department and or your sales department. The best um, service customer is probably your sales department, honestly. So you should treat them like a customer. Uh-huh. Don't forget that service department literally makes money on the sales department. So don't treat them like you hate them. If a customer came in and was bringing in 20 grand a month of business to your service department, I guarantee you, you'd be working hard to make sure that customer was as satisfied as you possibly could. The service department needs to treat the sales department as a number one customer. The parts department needs to treat the service department and the sales department as number one customers. And you need to to make it so that everyone involved in this thing isn't getting bent over on the pricing of stuff. And at the same time, they're all understanding it's for the better big picture of the whole dealership. It's all about the big picture. You know what I mean? We, we all get kind of departmentalized and get into these little groups that, you know, I, 
a lot of times the parts department guys have meetings, the sales department guys have meetings, the service department guys, and there's never any group meetings for the dealership that really bring everyone together and talks about this kind of stuff. Unless there's but, a big problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. the one yeah. time seems yeah. to bring them together. Yeah. But by bringing your three departments into a common goal and a common thing, and, and here's another one. Those salesmen, they're not going to sell a unit that costs $2,000 more because it's got a, a sound system, a windshield, and a roof on it over another one unless they're getting something out of it, uh-huh. bottom line. Uh-huh. So you have to give them something. Uh-huh. They should get something out of that. The parts department can sell it for 20% over cost to the sales department, and then the sales department can pay a commission on that thing because they're making money on it. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yep. And so, so, so it can all happen, and everyone's happy. The salesman's happy because now that $2,000 worth of accessories just got him an extra 50 bucks in his pocket on the sales deal. And he's not going to want to pull it off then, you know, uh-huh. the service guy that, that still got 80 bucks an hour versus a hundred bucks an hour to install it all. He's still happy because he still made money too, you know? Uh-huh. And so when you, when you break the walls down between the departments and honestly, I would, I would, I really tried to not even have departments at my dealership. We had sales goals for units that everybody in the building got a, got a bonus on. And, if the month was 25 units or 40 units or whatever it was <coughs> based on previous sales and stuff like that. Um, and, and basically what I just, I, I do I, now that I say anything, but I know exactly what I did. So in my dealership, we did, um, I guess I don't remember at all. I think we did 50 bucks. I don't know. A hundred dollars. If we sold 25 units in one month, if we sold 30 units, it was another 50 and every five units up from there was another 50 bucks. And everybody in the dealership got that bonus. Everybody. The title girl did. The setup guy did. The service guy did. The office manager did. Everybody, I didn't, but everyone else did. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, so, and so the bottom line was is that, you know, of course, the sales staff always hated that because they're the ones selling it. They feel like they should get all that bonus, you know? But the problem is, is that, if they're selling 40 units this month versus 20 units the month before the parts department, if, if we're all doing a good job, the parts department gets buried ordering parts, bringing in parts and, and getting parts for the, to, to complement that sale. The clerk, the, service, the clerking part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the service department, you know, they're, they're ordering it, they're buying it, they're receiving it, they're getting it over to the, the service department so they can install it. The service department's getting buried on installing stuff on new units and, and used units. Uh-huh. And the title clerk isn't buried because now they're doing 40 titles versus 20. The, you know, every person in the dealership, the more you sell in one month, if you're not just selling uh, cookie cutter uh, brand new units with nothing on them, which is, you should never do. Uh-huh. But if you're, if you're really working, working the sale and actually having some parts and accessories and service put into it, and just just putting together forty bikes in a month versus twenty the month before, or uh, servicing forty bikes in a month, and you know, so there's there's a workload that goes with sales for everybody in the building. And so I paid everybody in the building, and that was the common the common way of kind of breaking down those walls was that everybody in the building got a bonus based on the number of sales of units for that month. 
Mm-hmm. And you know what happened? When we would when we would be at twenty eight units, and you had to get to thirty to get another fifty bucks, the entire staff would help sell. Mm-hmm. So if a guy walked in, and the sales guy was on the phone, man, you see parts guys running out there start talking to him. You would see service guys come out from the back that you know on their way to the restroom and start talking to them for you know. You know what I mean? It just mm-hmm. was a, a common goal was we need yep. two more sales. If yep. we get two more sales, we all make 50 bucks more, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it was a simple little way to break down the walls of the barriers of the departments and bring them all together. And again, if the, if the sales guy sold 40 bikes versus 20, he already made more money. Mm-hmm. But, but I still paid him the bonus on top of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So he still... He was just, it was equal. Everybody was equal on that bonus. Well, and, and that and helped break of, down those walls. I was going to say, yeah, you're, you're referencing walls and it's very true because you think about the, what can be the, you know, the, the hurdle or the walls or whatever's the barrier that, that it's running into, you know, it's like the, the river carving itself through the, through the Canyon, you know, it's like it, it, it'll force its way through, but it doesn't go through easily. Just to, like you're saying, if there's no, if there's, if there's a whole bunch more volume, going on and there's a weak spot or a portion of that that isn't feeling like you know if it's an hourly paid or a salary straight salary paid person they don't see the incentive of working faster for the greater good right unless you're working a program to to help them see that through you know positive reinforcement more money (laughs) yep Yep. yeah i love it that's that's again goals and bonuses are and basically commission pay are the thing that makes this industry really work, honestly. And the successful dealerships, everybody is on some type of, you know, bonus goal pay based system of some type. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent of your income, but I could tell you from being a sales rep where it is hundred percent of my income, it you know it's really rewarding whenever you have a great month or when you have a great week or even a great day or even a one visit it's always rewarding and it makes you want to go to the next visit or it makes you want to talk to the next customer because you just had a great experience because you know you made yourself some extra money there mm-hmm. um you know it's just it's just very rewarding and mm-hmm. that's always important mm-hmm. hmm. wow man i got i got a lot of info out of you tonight <laughs> I didn't think you'd be able to stay on as long to chat it up. You're out in the future. You're at uh, what time is it now out there? Midnight? After midnight? Twelve uh, sixteen. Holy moly! All right. Well, thank you. All right. Well, yeah. uh, I uh, this is exactly. I mean, what you and I are talking about is exactly the reason I wanted to have a podcast like this. It was for one, right? I was I was like the idea of man, I could really share some stories of people in the business. You know, whether it's just a funny goofy story or whatever but the more i thought about it i I thought yeah i want to get those when i can get them but more than anything if there's little morsels and obviously as we began talking and i realized you had a whole you know quarry full of morsels that i wanted to make sure to get you on and at least hit some high high points and thankfully you're uh you're awake enough and energetic enough at midnight in Texas to uh, to go over this much of this with me, and I think this is going to be really meaningful to to those who have. Yeah. I'm very out. passionate about successful businesses. Obviously, I make my living on successful businesses, and mm-hmm. I've I've always made my living trying to be successful and trying new ideas and new things. And um, 
I, I sent you that document that I use as a kind of bullet point for mm -hmm. this whole type of information that has a whole lot more details in it. Mm -hmm. And um, if you want to share, if anybody reaches out to you, obviously I don't, I don't have any problem you sharing it. Okay. It's not, it's not the, it's not a secret sauce. And honestly, there's nothing in here that I invented myself. I would like to, I'd like to take credit of things that I've done in my past, but honestly, pretty much everything that I've, I do or have done, I've learned from somebody else. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, I've been around since I was 14 and, which is unfortunately a long time ago. Um, <laughs> and I've been you know, in dealerships and around dealerships my entire life, even through the time at Kawasaki uh, for 10 years, I was still very much involved in dealerships at that point. Um, so, you know, it's, it's uh, I really, you know, am just a, a true motorcyclist and believer in the, in the business and the sport and love to see dealers being successful. So, well, kick ass. I mean, I know that, you know, definitely Western's lucky to have you and the dealers that you call on right now in your territory. And, 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 and for that matter, anybody that got to listen to this podcast with you on it is, uh, is, is lucky or thankful to, uh, to have this sort of perspective because you don't just get this overnight. So, well, except tonight, no. tonight they get yeah. it overnight, Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, no. I got one well, last thing going yeah. away. If your dealership sells 90% UTVs and your entire staff is all dirt bikers, which mm -hmm. tends to be the fastest, easiest way to get employees is from motocross people, mm -hmm. you need to find UTV people to put into your staff because you got to be able to walk the walk and talk the talk. And you need staff that can go to events and go to, you know, the redneck of rednecks with paychecks or the, mm -hmm. My nationals or yeah. all that kind of stuff. You need staff to go to those events and fly your colors for you. You need to be visible. You need to be a part of that culture. And you know, I I, um, I know it's super hard to find these guys. They're they're they are tough to find. But there's plenty of uh, plenty of UTV people out there now with how big that side of the market is. Mm -hmm. And I just really believe that that's one of the things that's the hardest thing for dealers to do is to um, stop hiring a whole bunch of motocrossers to sell UTV people parts. And that's, that's a, that's an important part of this walking the walk and talking the talk. Well, maybe, if maybe if that's where you're at in your business. You need to have that guy. What's the saying with age comes a cage. I don't have a cage, but maybe I'm not old enough or whatever, <laughs> but some of my friends that are old motocrossers that have gotten around this age of, have gotten into yep. cars, as they say, we're driving yep. cars now. And I'm like, cars. Oh yeah. That's a side by side. in. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's the trend. Maybe you just got to pick up a, an older motocrosser. <laughs> that's your, yeah. that's your new, uh, hot, hot guy on side by side. So, yeah. And you can, you can create it if you want to invest, yep. you know, you can take a guy and say, Hey, you know, take one of the guys you trust. One of the guys, you know, will protect your equipment and mm -hmm. put them in one and send them to these events and, uh, build the thing up, you know, let, let, you know, because if you, I always had the trickiest motorcycle known to man um, because every part that I put on my motorcycle, it was easy for me to put it in my showroom and show it to people, you know, and the um, and best way to, best way to sell pieces of parts is to use them. And so if you want to build a, a really cool razor or Terex or something and have, have your, one of your staff, you know, become that guy, then send them out there and turn them loose and be ready to invest a little bit of money because it, it doesn't 
it, it takes a little bit of money of investment to gain all that business. Mm-hmm. But if you do it, you'll be surprised. That's, well, that's, it's, I think it's exactly just that I, it's just that I same mean. way too with the consumer, you know, showing up at a dealership with a certain level of expectation on what you know about what they're there to, to talk to you about. And, and I think exactly that if you have, you know, you have guys showing up and he's kind of like, yeah, this is really a side by side shop. I mean, they're, they, they got side by sides, but no one there. I mean, I knew more than all the guys there. You definitely don't yep. want to be in that sort of a position because that's how you'll get uh, minimized kind of in their in their eyes as far as the provider. And as an example, when KTM decided to bring in ready to race ATVs, I was like, okay, how do I capitalize on this business? How do I make the most of this? So I put an ad on, uh, I think, MotorcycleIndustriesJob.com. Mm-hmm. And a guy from uh, Wisconsin called me up. And I think I ended up, I, th- I spent some money. I can't remember. He, But him and his wife flew down. They stayed at my house. And we showed them all around the city of Decatur, the big sprawling metropolis of Decatur. <laughs> And um, ultimately, I hired him. He moved from Wisconsin. And we built a huge ATV following and a huge ATV business. Unfortunately, KTM decided not to do it anymore because most of the dealers didn't do what I did. Um, But I was making a lot of money on ATVs. And our service shop, like this guy that I hired, his name's uh, Rich Laton. He's 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 back in Wisconsin right now. Um, But he was an avid... um, 30 plus vet rider, super fast, won tons of races, um, you know, zone units, had them all built up and it actually came from a, a business that built big bores and everything else. So he was pretty technically savvy. And, um, and so we started developing parts for the, the KTM ATVs. We had key locator kits. We had 12 volt or uh, 24 volt starting systems off-road races we were doing recluse clutches when nobody else even knew what a recluse clutch was for one of those things um suspension we did a full suspension package um you know we had full graphics kits for them you know everyone that raced for us had our graphics on and we had a full motocross side and a full off-road side of people racing atvs every weekend and that was because i was smart enough to know that i wasn't going to be able to do that myself i needed to hire somebody that was smarter than me at that side of the business and Rich was a great asset and did a lot for my business. Unfortunately, it all fell apart when KTM decided to not sell those ATVs. <laughs> yeah. But the bottom line was it was it was a great thing that I did as an ownership manager, or whatever, was to make that decision to invest into this guy. And you know, the investment paid off in, in leaps and bounds. So Well, it sounds like you're Overall, I mean, it seems like that that's kind of been your position and running your own business was a matter of saying, here's, here's the cards I'm dealt, right? I mean, when you sign up to be a dealer of a certain brand, you, you're, you don't get to really have as much as you'd love to say, I told them this is how the product should change. And next year, it's all different the way you want it. That's not how that works. You're, you're going to take the cards you're dealt when you signed up to, to be the representative in the market of that brand. And if you're smart, do the things along the lines you did, which was to go and say, you know, what's next level and, and this, okay, we can make the frames better. We can get them powder coated to make them colorful or, you know, whether it's color or function and, or, or combination thereof and all these pieces of that you're doing. That's something where I think the guy's looking for that edge and willing to go out on a limb for the edge. I don't know if that's two different analogies put together, but 
Um, that's it. Sounds like an example of what you continue to do with like the 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 race ATVs. I know that was the case, and I know that you. I mean, now you see them, and they're people snatch them up now, and they find them right. But back then, when they were doing them, like you'd said, I don't think anybody was doing that. You know, definitely, definitely the the not the norm for a dealer to jump on board, embrace the program, say, how do we even make this bigger and better and get a following. Uh, that's definitely abnormal, which, you know, it made you yeah. successful in that area. So <clears throat> do you, so you, you mentioned, would you say his name was rich? Yeah. Rich Latan. Yeah. So, you know, in mentioning somebody like that, and obviously somebody that you've, you know, worked well with, do you have anybody that you'd either want to, you know, either in the business or out of the business, anybody that you'd like to throw out a, this person, you know, has been either a mentor to you or has helped you in a way that you'd, just like to memorialize in a recording and say this person's helped me and, and want to say thanks to them or, you know, yeah. anything along those lines. So when I was 14 years old, I used to go to a dealership in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. I didn't even have a bike yet. <laughs> and I just wanted a bike. And I would pedal my bike up this big, long uphill road, like five miles uphill to get there, literally uphill the whole way. It was downhill going home, but it was uphill. And there was a guy working there named John Ayers. And a lot of people in the industry know John Ayers. Mm -hmm. um, he is still very active in the industry, very active in the outdoor nationals as far as every sign, every banner, every string pennant that's around the track, everything that has to do with a lot of like the parking and, and a lot of the vendor um, where the vendors are located and everything. John has a lot to do with all that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And at the time, when I was 14 years old, he was a commission service guy. In other words, you know, I think we charged 60 bucks an hour back then at the dealership, and he probably made 30 of it. Well, he hired me to be his gopher kid to just speed up his process so he could turn out more um, labor hours. Hmm. And so I would pull motors, and he would build them. I'd put them back in the frames. I would take wheels off, and he'd change the tires, or I'd pull a top end off, and he'd bore the cylinder and put it back on, you know, whatever, whatever I could do to speed his process up was what he did. And he, he paid me with used takeoff tires. <laughs> and so <laughs> as, as life went on, um, he ended up leaving. I ended up the, the full-time mechanic of that dealership and I was still in high school. And then about four or five months before I graduated high school, I actually moved up to, he had opened his own dealership up in, uh, in Grove city, Pennsylvania. And so I ended up going up there and he, uh, I ended up ultimately my dad and I bought that dealership from him. Hmm. And then ultimately I think he's the one that was, I, I was a team green rider um, in 1985 and then 1995 I was hired by team green. And I think in both cases, that guy helped me as much as I was a part of his business. He helped me. I was working for him and I think, He's never told me this. Nobody's ever told me this, but I swear that he had a lot to do with the reason that I got hired at Kawasaki Team Green, which mm -hmm. was one of the best things that ever happened to me in this industry. And um, so, yeah, there, there's a ton of my work ethic, um, the knowledge I have of the industry. I met people through him because he was a national motocrosser. You know, there was just a lot of things that uh, that happened. Um, through the years of me working for the various companies that he had. And, um, and when you go to the races and you see those big trucks, they're selling t-shirts they all mm -hmm. say motor tees on the side of them. Mm -hmm. Those are him. Well, for two or three years, I was the print shop manager of his whole, um, and he was building 
we were building gear for Thor, Sinasalo, Yoko, Moose, our own gear, racewear gear. We were doing all the event t-shirts for all the uh, GNCCs and outdoor nationals and everything. I mean, it was a big, it was a seven day a week, 24 hour a day print shop. And we also were pioneering the processes too, to be able to do all over print jobs for jerseys at the same time. So the guy really, really, really has done a lot for me. And if there's one guy that I'd ever want to say thank you to, it's John Ayers. For sure. That's funny. I would not have, obviously I wouldn't have known that you had that connection, but I, I'm, I'm from the Northeast, so I know who he is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, and it's a, an example of, I think what the sort of thing that you'd mentioned, you know, your experience at dealership is to try to get people, and leave them better than you found them, you know, whether yeah. it's in the business or with their skills. And obviously that's something that you've, you know, picked up from guys like him. That's. Yeah. And he that's... taught me how to ride. I was, <laughs> I, my nickname was Stonehead back in the day. He can, he can tell you the story. I'm not going to tell it. Anyway. Um, so I was, uh, like I said, I didn't have a motorcycle when I first met him. And then I ended up, you know, becoming a 125C rider and I was tall and lanky and sucked and I was terrible but he was like a winning gold medals and had been like top 25 national guy, you know, and I, you know, so I got to ride with him every day. We rode and rode and rode. We were like inseparable. And, and pretty soon I turned intermediate and I turned expert. And then one day I actually passed him, <laughs> you know, that was, that was a bad day. That was a hard day for me. I can tell you that. But, uh, but the bottom line is, is that the guy taught me how to ride. He taught me how to work on bikes. He taught me how to work how to be responsible. I mean, you know, I'd like to say that my dad had a little bit to do with that, my mother, but I spent more time with John Ayers from 14 up than with anybody. And so, you know, I mean, I, I was still in high school and I had already bought a house trailer and was living an hour and a half away from where I was supposed to be going to school. And I still finished school and still graduated, but I got the half day work thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I was driving up there and, and working for like the last four months. And, um, you know, and so I'd spend a couple of days up there and then a couple of days at home. And, you know, but that was all John Ayers doing that. And that's, hmm. The only thing he never taught me how to do, and I still to this day wish he would have, is to weld. That guy could weld anything. He, I, he could weld a broken heart. And I wish I would have learned how to do that. So. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I've never touched, I've never done any welding myself, so I don't know, but I've seen, I've seen yeah. examples of what I assume my welds would look like that people have yeah. done. Looks <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like bubble gum all over. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Oh, shoot. Well, Hey, thanks for coming uh, on and uh, thanks for spending this much time. I know it's late and I know you got a full day tomorrow. It's Friday tomorrow. Oh, really? So you've got a, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, but I'm glad we get to put this sort of content out to guys and you got to thank some guys and share your stories and, and definitely some really killer experience. So thanks sure. for jumping on and uh, anybody listening, uh, please share anybody know in the business that you think will gain any of the many morsels within this, please share this with them. Um, hit up, you know, Instagram, Facebook, I'm on there with just, you know, more connecting points on this, but uh, uh, any uh, feedback you have, you can send over to me at dealershipfixit at gmail.com. Otherwise, uh, listen for the next one. And uh, Craig, thanks for coming on. Yeah. And thanks to, uh, what's it, hashtag ask for Skippy yeah. for hooking us up to. <laughs> exactly. That was another, another cool part there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's how it works, Ryan, all these connections. Ryan McPherson. Yep. Yeah, go hit up Ryan and uh, Cycle Center. Didn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Craig. Yeah.
All right. Thank you. Catch you later. Uh, Good night. Bye.